the news about Walter Berglund wasn't picked up locally. He and Patty had moved away to Washington two years earlier and meant nothing to St. Paul now. But the urban gentry of Ramsey Hill were not so loyal to their city as not to read the New York Times. According to a long and very unflattering story in the Times, Walter had made quite a mess of his professional life out there in the nation's capital. His old neighbors had some difficulty reconciling the quotes about him in the Times, arrogant, high-handed, ethically compromised, with the generous, smiling, red-faced 3M employee they remembered pedaling his commuter bicycle up Summit Avenue in February snow. It seemed strange that Walter, who was greener than Greenpeace and whose own roots were rural, should be in trouble now for conniving with the coal industry and mistreating country people. Then again, there had always been something not quite right about the Berglunds. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a podcast that's putatively about books longer than 500 pages, arbitrarily big books, and we have finally decided to put to rest one of the ultimate controversies of this century's <laughs> uh, literary world. <laughs> um, is Jonathan Franzen a good novelist? We're going to definitively tell you. We're going to 100% definitively answer this question prob probably <laughs> um that's mostly a joke but yeah anyone who's new to the podcast welcome old readers welcome we've done jonathan franzen uh we've uh, we've we're doing um jonathan franzen's freedom which was published in 2010 uh an Oprah book club book club selection and he is famously a very grumpy man who the entire world has opinions about and bill i was curious if you wanted to start us off with like you're pre-reading him opinions. What did you come into Franzen thinking about Franzen? Yeah, so Franzen is one of those guys that you hear about on the internet a whole bunch uh, and, and have an opinion about and then realize you've never read a word he's ever written, right? At least that was my right. experience coming, yeah. at, uh, coming at his work. Again, I, I don't actually come from like a, an English major background, so nobody ever assigned me to read this book, and it's not the sort of thing that would ordinarily stumble across my pathway uh, where I live in my sort of strange corner of mostly pulp fiction and also 19th century Napoleonic War historical fiction. I've gotten really into like all of that stuff Classic. now. Um, Classic. I'm considering next year just only reading all of the Hornblower, Master and Commander, and Sharp novels, and that'll about do me for a year. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Anyway. I made, a, I made a joke on Twitter about becoming more dad-like, but you just one-upped me so hard. <laughs> With that list of books. That's incredible. Yeah. No, I, I might very well do that. Uh, I think I am going to read Churchill's History of World War II next year. So, yeah. No, I don't even have any kids. I don't know what my excuse is. Anyway, Jonathan Franzen does not write 19th century uh, historical war fiction. More is the pity. Uh, what he does write are sort of social realist novels about, at least in two of his more famous occasions, Midwestern families dealing with sort of the travails of being... Midwestern Alive. families in the yeah. you know later 20th and early 21st century. Uh, his first book, not, it's not literally his first book. He'd written one or two before, but his first one that took the world by storm was The Corrections, which was written in, or published in 2001. 
Uh, and that won a bunch of awards and made a big scene and was an Oprah's book club thing. And then he said something which may or may not have been quite as controversial as he intended it to, but about how he, you know, because it was an Oprah's book, a lot of women were reading it and maybe it wasn't supposed to be a woman's book. And I think I don't fully understand that controversy, but he's the sort of guy who says stuff like that is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the next book he wrote uh, or was published was Freedom, which he published in 2010. Uh, and it was also, a, it was a big deal, uh, is my understanding. It was reviewed in every outlet. Everyone had to have an opinion about Jonathan Franzen. So my sort of prior experience with Franzen is when he will say something silly in a Guardian interview, and everyone I know on Twitter will sort of take turns dunking on him. Um, I, I don't really <laughs> know to what extent that's really fair. I really haven't looked into these interviews very much, right? Like the sound bites yeah. sure come off as pretty silly. Like when he said... To understand the young, young people better, he briefly considered adopting an Iraqi war orphan as though that would help him better connect with the younger, like, population that he doesn't understand, which is a really <laughs> wild thing to say. It may have been mostly a joke. It may not have been. I'm not clear on it. Uh, but that's the sort of thing Jonathan Franzen says. Um, I'm going to try not to just be the sort of guy who dunks on the sort of white male novelist because I think that is a little boring. But if there is a guy to dunk on, it's him for that, right? He definitely embodies, for good and yeah. ill, the sort of modern white male novelist literary fiction author it's he's the guy for that um the guy you're thinking of when you think of that guy is jonathan franzen whether you know it or not so that's kind of my previous franzen exposure is just coming across people making fun of him on twitter uh you've read at least the corrections before right joel yeah i have actually so um my my knowledge of franzen is, is sort of the same thing a lot of my kind of like witness of people ducking on him was more real time real life because i you know i went to an mfa um, which kind of like telling people you have a podcast. It's like one of those things that you don't, I don't know, you don't like to share for some reason. I don't know. A lot of <laughs> preconceived ideas about, but yeah, so I went to an MFA at Syracuse. Um, and you know, everyone has opinions about Franzen. He sort of dominated the scene. Uh, I would say honestly, yeah, from the corrections to freedom, I'd say like the two thousands, like that decade, he was sort of the, you know, one of the most famous novelist in America for sure, but he's kind of one of those problem novelists for lots of reasons. One of which is that like, he's so hugely popular. There's almost like nothing more interesting than the reactions he creates, right? Like he now is like, sort of like his effect is almost more interesting than the novels in some ways. Not, I don't think that's true, but like that's, that's people, people have gotten so caught up in, you know, and his whole drama thing. But I do think, I will say, like, I have never made it through one of his essays. I have tried to read a few of his essays. I do find them somewhat insufferable in, like, a technical sense. Like, he's obviously, I think, a smart guy. I think he does have kind of, like, a, a weird, ironic, you know, punk rock streak. Um, however blasé he might be in person, I think, artistically, he, you know, he like, this book, Freedom, has a rock star in it, and I think he's very into you know, kind of alternative music and so forth. And he definitely wants to have that kind of cultural streak, um, which is why I think, he, you know, he kind of maybe was a little uncomfortable with the Oprah book club <laughs> label, right? That like his books are often about commercialization and corrections and freedom at least definitely feature little plot lines where the younger generation seems not to care about the ways in which the marketing and capitalism is continually selling them a false lie that they're kind of they're kind of happily painting over with the right ethics but it's still just consumerism anyway anyway so yeah i i, I feel like i knew about him more pointedly in some ways but not 
not more specifically. But for, for this book, though, I read the corrections, and I, I liked the corrections. And I, I read it partly because everyone told me how insufferable and annoying Franzen is and was. And yet I found the corrections to be very, very good. I, I had some problems with it, but my memory of it is mostly like that was a pretty incredible novel, which I think a lot of novelists are responding to whether they want to or not. So this novel I feel more ambivalent about. And maybe before we get into that, uh, you can just give me maybe like a quick summary of, of what freedom is and the main players and so forth. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, so freedom is uh, not as long as some of the other long reads we've done. And it doesn't require, I think, quite as many degrees as a proper understanding of like a secular age did. There's a really right. bit of a tonal yeah, whiplash geez. to go between the two, which is good. <laughs> that's why, I mean, that's one of the things I like about this podcast is we do lots of different Same. things. But, you know, I read this book more or less not in one setting, but in like three settings very easily, yeah. you know, the secular age, you know, took over my life for like two months. Um, so this is not one of those. It's about 570 pages in my copy, 580 pages, I think. Uh, and it's about a family and a few of the other sort of people who are caught in their orbit. The Berglund family, uh, Walter and Patty, who, uh, Walter's from Minnesota. He's from Hibbing, Minnesota. And Patty's from New York originally, but moved to Minnesota to go to the University of Minnesota. Uh, and so they're living, uh, to begin with, in St. Paul, or a uh, where, which, in a neighborhood which is gentrifying. And they have two kids, Joey and Jessica. And the novel is really about Patty and Walter's sort of disintegrating and reforming marriage. Uh, Joey sort of has a bit of a... Um, Buildings Roman thing going on. Streak. Yeah, he's a he's a. Ever, <laughs> I, I think this is important. This is at least my opinion as I read this book. Is I don't think there's a single person in this book that you could pay me to spend more than five minutes in a room with. Which is not a criticism <laughs> of the book. All right, it's okay to write books about yeah. unlikable people, but with yeah. a few limited exceptions, maybe of like passing characters, I think I would uh, really rather do various physical tortures to myself and have a conversation with just about any of these people. Um, Agreed. But that's a separate issue. That's okay. That's not a criticism of the book necessarily. It it, it does make the book interesting because I do think this is a book where it's almost like one of those like forced video game playthroughs where you have to give yourself a set of rules for how to respond to any question, right? Like like you're going to play the, yes. the wolf among us and always take the aggressive answer. It's sort of like that where every character at every point has to make the worst possible decision. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, oh that doesn't gosh. tell you what the book's about though. So Patty and Walter uh, met in college um, Walter was not exactly who Patty wanted, but he was nice to her, which she liked. Uh, she had uh, been sexually assaulted in high school, and she doesn't necessarily react to that in the sort of the traditional way. But he, at least upon knowing that, was very sort of kind and gentle with her. And she found that kind of nice. But she was really more in love with his rock star roommate. Or he's not a rock star. He was, at the time, he was like a punk rocker, Richard Katz. And the tr tr triangle between the three of them is kind of a big part of the book. Um Patty ends up having a brief affair with Richard, which then they don't find out about for a long time. And when they do, then right. Patty, Walter kicks her out of the house. Uh, that takes up a big chunk of the middle part of the book. The structure of the book I probably should have done first is kind of interesting. Uh, the opening section is a sort of a bird's eye view of the life that the Berglunds had in this neighborhood in St. Paul, mostly yep. from the perspective of the neighbors, right? It's not, it's not strictly that, but it's sort yeah. of more of a, almost like the road... Yeah, like almost sort of like a, the road through the wall, Shirley Jackson's novel about neighborhoods, right? Where like you have, you know, different people will say, I heard she did this and I heard she did that. And it's not strictly that you will get them scenes from them in the dining room, too. But it's it's a lot more sort of uh, bird's eye view as the kids grow up uh, and get ready to go to college. Joey 
the boy, Patty, pretty much spoils the heck out of him, and as a result, he comes to hate her and eventually uh, moves in next door with uh, his girlfriend that he's been sleeping with for a long time, and they're sort of horrible Republican parents. Um, or not parents, her horrible Republican mother, the girlfriend's mother, and her horrible Republican uh, new stepdad, who is just a caricature. We may come back to him later. Blake, I want to say his name is? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, it's Blake. Their other kid, Jessica, is very much not the focus of the novel. She pretty much only exists as a character for other people to have opinions about. <laughs> um, I know. Uh, poor, poor Jessica. Let's just start. The, right now, a motif of this podcast is, you know, she's insufferable in her own ways, but poor Jessica. And also maybe the only character in the room I would be willing to talk to. Um, not that she's not also yep, insufferable. Agreed. but uh, No, but yeah, I talked to her. Patty is a stay-at-home mom, which Walter is confused about because Walter's a very much a sort of a, not exactly a hippie type, but sort of like very much an environmentalist, like very concerned about big issues from the 70s and very concerned about being a feminist. And so he's a little confused that his wife wants to stay at home, but he decides that's okay. She's okay with it when they're like babies and young kids, but starts to have a hard time with it, particularly when Joey becomes an adolescent. Eventually, so we get we get that sort of breakdown, and then we get several chapters, which is Patty's autobiography that she wrote after moving to D.C. with Walter at her therapist's um, request, which includes both. It's a first, so it's a it's not a first person. Well, it, it <laughs> she writes it in third person in the narrative, right? So like the book that Patty yeah. actually writes refers to Patty in the third person and describes herself as the autobiographer. So it's. It is a bizarre sort of first and third person thing. I actually would say that I think the Patty autobiography sections are the best parts of the book, which is not the opinion that I saw on the internet from other people, but I think it's because they're wrong. Anyway, so it, I, it describes I, her I whole history. Yeah. It describes her like experience being sexually assaulted and why her family handled that just terribly. It describes her falling in love with Walter, sort of. It describes her cheating on Walter with Richard, and then it stops at that point. We get a series of chapters from a third-person perspective, from the perspectives of Walter, Richard, and Joey. Joey is trying to go to college, stringing along his high school girlfriend in a series of like terrible ways, and also getting knee-deep in like this sort of wild subplot from a whole other novel <laughs> where Joey gets involved in like corrupt governmental dealings in the war in Iraq. And it, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it's super dumb and doesn't, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm bleeding into criticism in the summary part, but it, it's very strange. Um, he, uh, and then also we get Richard who mostly just shows up to screw up Rich Walter's life sometimes. But the gist of it is that Walter has been hired to do this super convoluted plan. This Republican like billionaire has decided to create a nature preserve for the Cerulean warbler. I should have looked up how to say that word. Cerulean, Cerulean, Cerulean. I, I, yeah, I think Cerulean. Yeah. Cerulean. That's how I'm going to say it. If I'm, if it's wrong, you know, comment in the comments. At um, Bill Coberly. <laughs> yep. Which is a bird that is not, at the time at least, actually on the endangered list, but might be soon. So they're going to create a nature preserve for that. By They're going to do that by, like, strip mining a whole portion of West Virginia, <laughs> kicking everyone out. And then once that's done, fixing it and making it a nature preserve. Walter is very conflicted about this, but he's, I guess, just sort of acting out and trying to do something useful. Every, every environmentalist in the world hates this plan except for Walter. Walter has a very pretty young assistant named Lalitha or Lalitha. I should have looked up how to say that, too. That's a real name. I'm going to go with Lalitha. I, yeah, I think I was going to say Lalitha, but I, yeah, it probably I don't is Lalitha. Know, I guess. L-A-L-I-T-H-A. Uh, Lalitha is very driven, very committed, uh, very pretty, about 28, and uh, very in love with Walter. Um, Walter is very not in any way going to cheat on his wife until towards the end when he starts sort of doing that. Uh, Richard is just kind of a washed up dude who shows up sometimes and is in love with both Patty and Walter. And then eventually after screwing Patty a whole bunch comes back to try to help Walter with this new sort of consciousness raising or like, I don't know, 
public service project where they're going to try to get kids to not have more kids by appealing to them with the power of punk rock. I do think that Franzen thinks it's a silly project. I don't, I don't, I don't. Anyway, so Richard Katz is going to help, but really he just wants to stop Patty again. Realizes that's not going to happen because Patty has sort of decided not to do that. But she gives him the autobiography and then he leaves it on Walter's desk. Uh, so Walter throws her out of the house, runs off with Lalith. Lalitha, has a series of sort of finding himself around the country things. They start to have their like rock concert festival in West Virginia. And while Walter is back with his family in Minnesota, Lalitha dies in a horrible car accident. Uh, yeah. Then we cut ahead to another section from Patty's autobiography where she describes what her life was like after Richard threw her out of the house. She lived with Richard for a while. Or after Walter threw her out of the house, rather. Sorry. She lived with Richard for a while. She then moved on and is like a, a administrative aide at a school and is kind of still in love with Walter. Then we get another bookend section from the perspective of a neighborhood. This is where Walter is now living in. Uh, it's around the lake house that uh, he used to live in. There's a neighborhood there now. And uh, Patty, he's being sort of a strange old hermit crank uh, yelling about everyone's cats. And then Patty comes home and they reconcile and leave and dedicate the area around the lake house to be another nature preserve named after Lalitha. That's the book. Um, there is obviously a lot of subplots in it, but I think that's the thousand foot view. Anything major you think I missed, Joel? No, I, yeah, I don't think so. I, I think, um, I think that it's interesting because you hear this book talked a lot about, you know, for its like sort of psychological interests, but it actually, it has a lot of plot and he always has a lot of plot, even though like, it, you know, it's not like a, you know, it's not plot heavy and yet there's definitely he definitely is using a lot of plot devices to get you through the book so like you have a lot of questions of like so the so the opening bird's eye view you basically find out that Joey you know he moves out of the house when he's 16 like that's pretty dramatic right it's a big deal and Patty has this breakdown and so you think that's kind of the question that's going to be answered and he kind of keeps doing that where he sets up these questions that he eventually like uses the energy of setting the question up um, to talk about other things. He kind of like redistributes that initial curiosity into wider and more complicated plots, which I actually I think that's, that's him at his best, you know. But um, but yeah, it's actually a very plot heavy novel in a way that I, I kind of forgot. He, he likes to set up these scenarios that have, you know, if not suspense, sort of kind of like an, an ironic suspense, such as like. Is Richard going to sleep with Patty? You know, how's Joey going to reconcile this like insane young marriage he has? But no, I th- I think yeah, I, I think it's definitely a book about aging. It's a book. About, I, it's a book about a lot of things. I guess that's that's what I would ask you. Maybe if we're gonna say it's a thousand foot level question, I, I, it's the kind of book where I feel like you you finish it and you keep thinking about like what <laughs> like what is this book trying to say? I guess, and I'm not sure. Like I usually ask that about novels. It's a dangerous question or a reductive question, maybe. But this book, which is like stuffed with politics, which may or may not be really his concern, but certainly it's it's maybe stuffed with this idea of like you know the book's called Freedom, and it has yeah. these <laughs> and it has these overtones of moral improvement or moral reflection. And um, you get to the end, and I think that you know one of the first questions is like, okay, so what does this mean? What was this book trying to? advocate or argue or even just confess and i, I don't know if you like what, you know it's kind of a big question but what what did you come away with in, in that regard i don't know i struggled a little bit to know exactly what the takeaway was supposed to be and i'm sure that's partly on purpose like i don't think he's trying to say and as a summation we should all do this yeah no lives. but but i mean yeah you name a book called freedom uh and anytime he talks about anytime the characters have an argument about what it means to be free which is not all that often but it comes up sometimes 
you know, I tried to note that down and see what I thought was happening there. Right. There's obviously a lot about marriage. I mean, there's sort of two major um, marriages and then also this sort of weird relationship between Richard, the rock star, and Patty. And so there's a lot about like what it means, I think, to be free within a relationship and to be free um, to make one's own choices, like when dealing with one's parents and the sort of things that parents want you to do, right? Because we have both... Yeah. Uh, we get a lot about both Walter's parents and Patty's parents, and then, of course, they are Joey's parents, and so we get a lot of that, sort of what it is to be sort of self-creating in these circumstances, I think, is one of the things he wants to deal with. I'm not exactly sure what the takeaway is other than, like, an exploration of those concepts. Does that make sense? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant yeah, to no, say I, I had yeah. some sort of epiphany about what the takeaway is, but I think well, that's I the sorts I, of things I, he's interested in. No, I, I think that's – and that, that's kind of what I was asking. I, I don't think this book has a thesis. And, it, and if it does, it's probably a pretty boring thesis. But I, I was trying to think of, like, if someone asked me what this book's about, like, do I have a more interesting answer than, oh, it's a portrait of a Midwest family. And, you know, it's, like, basically about, you know, like, like very young boomers or very old Gen Xers. And I think that is true, but I, I had a couple of thoughts. One thought is it's a book that is primarily interested in sex, to be honest, uh-huh. and kind of like the forces and stupidities <laughs> of wanting to sleep with other people, whether you're married to them or not. You know, it's definitely about it's definitely about that. And to, to, honestly, I think probably some of the reason Franzen gets so much flack is he's clearly a writer who's interested in sex, which I don't think is immediately like um, – you know, shouldn't immediately nullify him as like a creative talent or whatever, or just just disqualify him. But I I do think I mean, just from like a inter- entertainment standpoint, I mean I I got bored with the reduction of every conflict to desire, and and I think I think he's playing with it in interesting ways sometimes. Like you mentioned, and the characters talk about explicitly that Richard Katz, you know, Walter's best friend, and eventually Patty's sort of um, only extramarital affair. He is in love with Walter in a certain way. I mean, at one point he even says like he's not interested in sleeping with Walter, but he gets hard. He gets excited, and the only way he feels excitement when he sees Walter or anyone is by having an erection. <laughs> at some point, it was like, oh, okay, I, I, I get it. I agree. Like, sex is is sort of like you know the fabric of desire or the instantiation of it. It's the conflict, yada yada. But like. I think if you're going to write about sex this much, a little like Tolstoy in his later career, to be honest, it it starts to get banal and it starts to be kind of like, I don't know, like, buddy, what's your hang up, I guess. And I, th- I feel like, even if that's not fair, I think you open yourself up to that if you continually write about sex, especially with like, you know, Richard Katz being a Lothario and having lots of sex with young women and talking about their bodies. You know, like at some point it's like, okay, how many characters do we have to have like describe someone else's vagina? You know what I mean? Like at some point I, you know, this book has more going on than that or it should, which maybe just me being like a bit of a Puritan, but it's a narrative critique or at least that's what I think it is. Well, I, I think, I mean, it's definitely, I guess I probably should have said more about this in the summary, but like this book is, uh, particularly the middle sections, the uh, which all take place in 2004, so the stuff in between the autobiography, although even a lot of the autobiography too, but pr- I, it's very much about sex. Like, I, I think the note I wrote was, sex is the only language any of these characters really know how to communicate in, right? Yeah. Like, all, yeah. all of the sort of marital conflicts between the characters are always, they're not always necessarily about sex, or it's not entirely about sex, but they're almost always communicated through sex, or at least in discussions of sex, Right. 
So like yeah. when Patty and Walter are trying to figure out some of their troubles in their marriage, it almost always comes with a discussion of what their sex life has been recently, right? Or it comes back to Patty's very brief affair with Richard and what that has to do with, right? Or Walter wanting to sleep with his pretty young assistant, but not wanting to, but wanting to, but not wanting to, right? And that becomes because, you know, you know even when Walter's thinking about his own sort of self and what he's doing as this sort of 40-something-year-old or 50s, I think like late 40s at this point, like environmentalist type who was nevertheless working with sort of, you know, American Rapacious Capitalists Incorporated to do this project. Right. You know, when he's thinking about himself, it also becomes a lot about him wanting to leave his wife or not wanting to leave his life for this like pretty young South Asian woman, right? And like he he one point feels like he's like being an imperialist, like having exhausted local supplies. He's going to go for you know, some foreign nation stuff and a single throwaway line, right? So, like, again, sex becomes yep. the language that a lot of these people speak. It's how Joey and his sort of buildings roman section, all of his stuff is also always mediated with his occasional hookups he has in college, his, like, intensely, strangely sexual relationship with his high school girlfriend, um, and then his desire for this uh, pretty sort of heiress type that uh, he's sort of falls in lust with for a while, right? And again, Richard's whole life, like, Richard literally is described as having a divining rod for a penis um and i think it's mostly <laughs> intended to be a joke but like yeah, he repeatedly yeah, yeah. refers to it as his, his prophetic dick or his prophetic penis and uh right. it's always getting hard and pointing at things uh and that means he's going to have sex with them which again I, I do think is intended to be a joke but about the eighth time i was like i get it and i'm gonna pick on a specific line here if that's all right i have some lines that yeah. i like a lot and i have some lines i want to pick on and I think I said, I do want to, I'm reluctant to just talk crap about this book because I think it does a lot of stuff very well, but the stuff that it does badly is so easy and fun to make fun of that I'm worried we're just going to do that for a while. Uh, but I'm okay with it because he shouldn't have written some of his dumb things <laughs> if he didn't want us to do that. Yeah. So there's, there's a bit, so Walter, sorry, Walter, Richard, also everyone has just these very generic like Anglo-Saxon names and trying to keep them all straight became difficult after a while, which made me feel like I wasn't racist. Like when I sometimes have a hard time keeping track of books where That's everyone true. has like, yeah, like, like a, a name and yeah, like Russian novel or something. Yeah, yeah. Russian or like Chinese or something like I'm reading a uh, Chishin Liu's three body problem. And sometimes I have a hard time yeah. with the names in that. And like, Hey, it's not that it's just that I have a hard time with names. That's kind of comforting. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> Richard is, you know, has a, has a prophetic heart on that. He's going to have sex with Patty again. And that's one reason why he's going to go back and try to help Walter with this sort of doomed overpopulation project. But then he goes back and he doesn't get to have sex with her when he wants. And she he leaves the autobiography on Walter's desk as sort of a hand grenade and then at least briefly considers suicide. I don't think it's ever a very serious threat, but he's at least briefly considering it. And so as he walks down the road towards his car or whatever, he walks over a bridge and considers jumping off of it. And... <laughs> The height was great enough to kill him if he dove, and diving was definitely the way to do it. Be a man, go head first. Yes. His dick was saying yes to something now, and this something was certainly not the whitish ass of the retreating jogger. Had death, in fact, been his dick's message in sending him to Washington? <laughs> Which is the worst sentence I've ever read in a novel. Uh, and so I do want to be clear that Franzen does a lot of great stuff and he's got some great writing, but he's also the sort of guy who will write stupid garbage like that. Um, which maybe I'm just a prude, but I think is a very silly thing to say. I think it's trying no, to be funny yeah. and I don't know. Well, no, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I like with every with, with every writer, you know, his strengths are his weaknesses. And you, you mentioned you, you, you read this book in a few settings, and I did as well. One of the blurbs in the back of my copy talks about, like, you're going to want to try and read it in one sitting. And I, I found that to be mostly true because he has a very casual, bloggy, journalistic style. Like, he, he definitely, this definitely feels like he's a writer who came of age in, like, the early internet and um, sort of the 
the tonal switches between like, you know, kind of this, you know, these cultural critiques that suddenly shift into like a higher locution that go right back into, you know, yeah, talking about this guy's penis directing him toward either a suicide or a pretty jogger. Like, he, you know, he does that pretty much throughout the whole book. And so it was often very compelling because it's so talky and gossipy and informal and has some momentum because of that. But at the same time, like, I think your your filter kind of, like, as a writer, your filter can lower, right? Like, you kind of, like, things slip through when you're so casual because when you're speaking, of course, you say all kinds of asinine things. <laughs> and I... <laughs> And I, th- I think that he is just one of those, right? But I, I think, I, I, for me, like, there's probably no way he can get rid of it. You know what I mean? Like, he unlocked his creative potential, which I think I've heard him talk about a little bit. Like, the corrections was sort of a breakthrough for him, you know? And he famously has an essay, I'm going to mess this up now, where he goes after, I think it's William Gaddis. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And calls him Mr. Difficult and talks about, like, why am I suffering through this, you know, obtuse and obdurate prose that won't let me inside of it or whatever and he is i think self-cast as the antidote right he's completely crystal clear while still trying to do a very intelligent investigation of like these people's lives which i mean so the sex part of it i think that's it's one way to, to talk about the novel which i think is related to how in some ways what compelled me about this novel is it's a question spanning these people's, you know, adult lives, Patty and Walter, it's a question of how to be good. How do you be good and be happy when those two things are in conflict? And that can be a really trite question. I think Graham Greene deals with the same question, sometimes well and sometimes poorly. Um, But what I found compelling about this book is that it, it often sets up the tension of, like, I continually have to confront the ways in which I cannot, you know embody my own values which is sort of a it's a very moralistic project when you get down to it right like because patty's always talking about she's a worse person than walter thinks she is and yet he wants her to be good and, and richard wants to be good partly because walter wants him to be a better man and this question of like becoming better or getting better as it exists in tension with you know your own inability to change who you are it's so simple, but it, in some ways, like, I, again, I don't know, as I age, I found it to be more profound. Like, I find it weirder now at 33 that, like, I still can't seem to overcome this basic tension of, like, you know, wh- why why is my instinct to get angry with my kids exactly like my dad, who wasn't around when I was a kid? That's that's bizarre to me. You know, like, and there, there's ways in which, you know, you're basically living out predestination versus free will in this microcosm of emotional tension. And I, maybe I'm giving it too much credit, but like that's the part of the book theoretically wise. I liked a lot actually. And I, I think he, he has some interest in also, of course the political stuff is meant to also kind of create these layers of determining causes, right? That all these people are existing in this very specific environment and the personal and the political are like continually in a word that he would love interpenetrating each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, which, so yeah, so it's a, it's a book about sex, but it's also arguably a book about, you know, what does it look like to try and be moral or try and be better? Do you, I mean, do you think that's fair to say? I mean, I do. I mean, that's one of the big questions is I, I think to some extent the politics, um, are sometimes contentless in terms of what Franzen thinks about. Like, I do think he sometimes puts some of his 
grouchy sort of aging punk rocker opinions in like Walter's voice right. in particular and Richard's too. But I think to some extent it's also sort of a, well, Walter thinks these things are good, but a lot of the choices he's making in his life aren't necessarily matching those political things, right? And his yeah, they're son, directly opposed. Yeah, you know, his son then moves off to these other set of political commitments and things that he finds interesting, which becomes a big moral tension between the two of them. But maybe again, the content of what that is doesn't matter, except insofar as it provides a framework for Walter and Joey to yell at each other, right? Does that right. make sense? Like, I think to some extent yeah. the political stuff doesn't otherwise matter. Uh, I think. I think he's generally writing in the assumption that the people who are reading this will be more sympathetic to Walter's sort of uh, hippie, you know, sort of liberal 1970s environmentalist vibe than they will to the conservatives, which I think is probably correct knowing right. his audience. I would imagine the majority of people reading this book are sort of NPR liberals, right? <laughs> Rather than... Uh, yeah, which he goes, which uh, he takes time to attack through the voice of Richard Katz, which I thought was funny. Well, nothing makes an NPR liberal happier than yelling at him about how he's not good enough. I mean, I'm not trying to get <laughs> too real so here, but true. come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. You're, you're right. He is simul... Like, that's actually... Okay, okay. I, I don't want to cut your point off, but that's actually, I think, sometimes the problem of this book, and I think people can almost sense it without necessarily articulating it, is there is something about these characters which is sort of like, it's like sort of flattering a narcissist. Do you know what I mean? Like these are characters who are sort of obsessed with themselves and their own drama, which is often kind of a, it's hard because like as someone who also doesn't have like a lot of huge problems in my life, I, I think talking about the emotional suffering of your average Joe or your average suburbanite, I think that's good. I'm all for that. But there's a way in which these characters are arguably all very self-absorbed maybe not Walter as much. And this book, in some sense, flatters that mindset. You know, it flatters that kind of suburban self-obsession. And I, I think the joke about NPR that Richard Katz has, you're totally right. Like, there's a funny way in which the book seems to be skewering NPR, or at least offering the chance for Richard Katz to do so. But in fact, it's playing to NPR's audience. That's a specific joke to flatter someone who listens to NPR and can kind of laugh at themselves. And so I, I, I'm not sure I have a huge point with that, but I think sometimes the book, you know, if it's getting slammed for being kind of insufferable, it's because it has this way of reinforcing or flattering the things that it's supposedly skewering, I think, which is often things that I... I find insufferable. So it's not about characters being unlikable, but, but you know, does that make sense overall that, you know, I think he is flattering some of the stuff he seems to be skewering. I mean, I think that's right. And again, I, I think that's because, you know, these still are the trials and travails of a bunch of um, pretty well-to-do suburban people, right? Like Walter grew up sort of uh, the sort of poor middle class, right? The sort of people who aren't like dying, like they're not literally starving, but they've made a really t terrible series of business decisions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like his, yeah. his, his parents bought this motel they couldn't really keep up with. So, uh, you know, not hard scrabble, like literally starving poor, right? But that's sort of like poor middle class uh, thing, right? Right. But other than that, like the rest of them, they all make a lot of money. Like Walter works for 3M for the beginning of it. And then when he works for this, uh, you know, Rapacious American Capitalists Incorporated group. Was it LBI? Is that what it's actually called? I can't even remember what it's actually called. Yeah. Um, LBI it's got some is which like is, the I mean, main corporation. The generic name of the corporation is correct. Like that is what those are. Those all have generic forgettable names. But, um, and so... Uh, you know, he, they've always got a lot of money. They live in like a mansion in Washington, D.C. at one point. And this is sort of the trials and travails of that. Now, like you, I don't think that means those people aren't interesting, right? But then when it wants to sort of chastise them for being 
self-absorbed. I'm like, yeah, we also wrote a 600-page book about <laughs> the interior psychology of this guy, <laughs> yeah, John. Yeah. Like, <laughs> which is okay. Again, yeah, well, I don't. But. No, I know. Well, I, th- I think it's hard. And I, I honestly think, like, I'll, I'll make this a, sh- a, sh- you know, like a, a short idea because I don't have a lot to say about it. But I do think it's this would be a good book to read right before you read, like, Jonathan D., who was a professor of mine at Syracuse and a really smart guy, but he had a book called The Privileges, which was sort of, I think, sometimes overshadowed by Franzen because it's, it's about, like, this rich New York couple who kind of, like, make these terrible moral decisions. And so it has a lot of these flags of, oh, this is more like Franzen, white people, sadness. But I, I actually think that's a book that's sort of truly critiques this world without flattering it and i'm not sure it's 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 actually probably not as absorbing as franzen like there's a way in which of course i am also being flattered by franzen when he talks about various things that i also know and i also find you know oh that's pretty dumb of me to do that too franzen good point but but i yeah i think there is a way to do that though with without necessarily kind of coming across i don't know with this whitewashing effect um but yeah, so yeah, we we were, we were going somewhere else initially. I don't remember where we were going, but yeah, um, we can go somewhere else. It'll be fine. We can just <laughs> I, I, this one's going to be a little more free flow. I think it's partly because we don't have to keep as uh, on topic point by point if we're going to make any dent in it the way we have for some of the last few. Uh, <laughs> so I think we've talked a lo- about a lot of criticisms we have of the novel, and I suspect we're not going to stop because, uh, again, as I said before, he does a lot of stuff really well on it, but the stuff he does. Poorly maybe isn't the right word, but the choices I don't like, right, uh, are the sort of choices that are very annoying to at least me. And I don't, I don't want to speak for you, Joel, but I think at least uh, yeah. similar, right? So, what are some things about the book that you really did like, Joel? I I quite enjoyed the opening chapter actually. Um, there's yeah. a there's an Atlantic um, article that or Atlantic review that was published when the book came out that I might quote from at some point that disagrees with me. But I I really liked the opening and I, I liked especially how quickly it zoomed through this couple's life in a neighborhood. Like I actually didn't think when it opened um, on the Berglands that we were going to zoom through in that first chapter them leaving the neighborhood and sort of Patty's decline from being the mother everyone loved to being sort of this unhinged, uncomfortable mother who kind of lost control of her son. But I thought in that first chapter, he showed all of his best instincts. So like everything he would introduce, he would eventually complicate, right? So we have one couple, um, Seth and Mary, I think maybe, something like that. We have one neighbor couple who's like our main lens as far as the neighborhood. And when he first introduces them, they seem pretty uppity and annoying, and by the end of the chapter, they're actually the ones who have the best insight into Patty and Walter. They're still kind of ridiculous and silly, but he does that really well, where he kind of lets enough time take over that we see the people differently just by nature of the circumstances changing. Um, other things I think he does well, I, I with you, I'll probably hand it off to you on this part. I, I also liked the, the autobiography of Patty, and I thought it had some of the best stuff in it partly because it had some of the most direct, wry humor juxtaposed against the most pointed kind of emotional stuff. Um, but I guess I would ask you, like, you mentioned you liked that earlier. Why'd that send out to you? So I found that to be the most interesting. I, I, I enjoyed his writing more there. Part of it maybe was I wasn't as bored with some of the sex stuff, right? I mean, that's going to sound yeah. like there's just more of it no, later I'm, on. You're like, okay, I get yeah. it. And also, yeah. I think it's a little bit more interesting... Um, 
you know, Patty isn't just horny the way like Joey is, right? Or Richard is, right? right? There's she, she certainly is, but it's a different kind of like Joey will write about like Joey's chapters will be partly about sex. It's just like, man, that chick is really attractive. I would like to do various sex things to her. And you're like, okay, I get it. Right. I understand. And yeah. I'm being a little bit like it's not quite that. One thing I do want to say, I, I don't think it's usually porny. Exactly. Like, it's often very explicit, but no. it's not really porny the way some other things are. Like, I read Dahlgren last year, and Dahlgren is just pornography in places. Uh, you know, just Samuel R. <laughs> Delaney having a little fun with some of the things he likes to think about, and that's fine. Um, and I don't think this book is that exactly, but it is definitely concerned with sex a lot. And a lot of Joey and Richard's stuff is a little bit more of the sort of, you know, young, confident dudes consuming female bodies, right? Uh, whereas yeah. Patty's stuff is a little bit more complicated. It's more tangled up in exactly how she feels about Richard and how she feels about Walter. And again, her sort of reaction to her sexual assault that happened to her when she was in high school, which, uh, just comes out of nowhere when he's describing it, by the way. Uh, yeah. he, he, uh, I, and a move that I think is probably right. It's jarring. He mentions something about, she, she writes, Pat, you know, Patty's writing about herself. Like Patty's first experience, you know, somebody else did this or that and joked about sex. And Patty's first experience was when she was raped at a party by this guy. And you're like, well, okay, all right, that's what's happening now. And so her wow, sort of reaction right. to that, you know, this slam dunk, it came way out of it. Or the slam dunk, that's not the word. I'm going to edit that out. That sounds horrible. What I mean is like <laughs> the, the, the brick wall that you slam into in the narrative there, right? Uh, yes. Is, I think, very well done because, of, of course, that's presumably what it felt like, right? Uh, and so... Uh, you know, you're going around minding your own business, and then this horrible thing happens. And that sort of relationship works really well. I also think she's got a a, a really interesting and sort of funny relationship with this stalker <laughs> named, uh, was it Eliza? Yep, Eliza. Yep. And she's the one who actually introduces Patty to Richard and then to Walter. And I think that sort of relationship is one of the more fun, uh, not, just, not just fun exactly, because it's kind of horrible in a lot of ways, but more interesting sort of relationships the book comes into, and then more or less abandons after a while, like we see her once more after this section, and I think that Patty's sort of, she's writing this as a therapeutic project, like literally, right? That's what this is supposed to be, supposed to be for. Right. And you can see her in the text working through her conflicting feelings about Eliza and berating herself, like, how on earth did you not realize this was weird at the time? You know, how did you realize that when she was talking about uh, having leukemia, she was clearly just doing a lot of heroin, <laughs> you know, right. uh, and, and I think yeah. it's touching in a lot of ways and it makes sense. And I do think it explains some of her weirder decisions later on. And so I found that to be the more interesting psychological portrait, whereas I, I pretty much was just bored with Richard and Joey all of the time. I did think Walter's stuff was, <sighs> was, was more too. interesting. Um, but after a while, it also got kind of one note, like good man isn't good, would like to sleep with his assistant, which is a little bit reductive. <laughs> That's not exactly what it is, but also like, okay, I get it. Also, you know, wasn't well, no, George Bush I, bad? Which, yes, he was. But, like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> no, I, I was. I totally agree. So I, I think that so it's hard because, especially when I haven't sat with a novel for a while, I feel like it can be hard to dissect it specifically. And yet, I, I think even though this is kind of what every author does, I think Franzen especially um, likes to, like, he wants to investigate type, right? That's kind of one of his main goals, even, is that he has you know, this suburban white couple who were like some of the first gentrifiers, right? He makes, he goes yeah. out of his way to say they were some of the first gentrifiers. You know, Patty was sort of the ultimate mom when the kids were young. Walter was sort of like so committed to biking to work that he would even do it when it was snowing and icing. You well, know, for the record, so people a, do that in the cities. So I lived in the Twin Cities yeah. for a while. I didn't live in St. Paul. People will take those greenways on these enormous bike tires that are like the size of my head and do that. Uh, in uh, February yeah. in Minnesota. So just for the record, that's a real thing. And it's... Uh, no, I, yeah. 
Let's go with that's Brave. Horrible. How's that? Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did, I did, I did, I never did that. I never had these huge snow tires, but Syracuse had some of that. Not as many people did it, I think. But I, Syracuse, even though I'm, you know, I'm from Colorado, I live in Colorado now, and I've seen, you know, big snow tires. I only ever really seen in the mountains, but in Syracuse, yeah, like the weather turned, and every cyclist I knew suddenly had these tires as thick as my head, and I was like, oh, this is. Okay, you get you can take a break from you can walk. You just walk places like it's not to bike everywhere. But but Sorry so I think but, but so there's a, <laughs> no no but no but there's a way in which he is highlighting their totemic qualities, right? So Patty and Walter are cast as types, but I I think what's interesting is that really Patty is is from the get-go less of a type because she already has kind of more things going on than anyone else does. So he, he, he definitely tries to make Richard and Walter more complicated. They're really, you know, they're both really intelligent. They're wide readers. You know, Walter, I think, stands out from Richard and his son Joey because actually of his own weird background being kind of like lower middle class poor. And like, you know, at one point in the autobiography, Patty says Walter could both sweat a pipe and was a good businessman. That was unusual. And, you know, so he kind of stands out eventually. But I, I, besides Patty, a lot of the characters, and Patty's this too, but she was just different, I think. But a lot of the characters are basically Franzen kind of doing an exercise and deconstructing a type. And I'm not sure he totally succeeds. So, like, Richard Katz, this kind of aggressively, you know, <laughs> almost punk rock musician who's really talented and going to make it eventually once he basically sells out. I I, I don't like the I I think the type that he is continually overwhelmed any specificity that Franzen was trying to force in there. Whereas with Patty from the get-go, she's like a, a star athlete at Minnesota and she comes from this kind of weird family where her mom's a politician back in like the 60s, you know what I mean? Like like that 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 all that's all a little less type-based, I think, than Richard or even Joey may have been. And I don't know, that that might be off, but that was one of the things I think he kept running into was how to escape the types he was trying to deconstruct. Well, I think that makes sense. And it's also interesting because, again, Patty gets these autobiography sections uh, at the second and penultimate sections, right? They, they bookend the 2004 yeah. section, which I think is probably the longest. I'd have to check. It's at least as long as any of the others, which hops between Walter, Richard, and Joey, right? But what's interesting yeah. is during that whole section, Patty is never a point of view character, right? And she's actually just kind of haunts the edges of it. We don't really get that many scenes where she's even really in it, actually. Like we have Joey thinking about, boy, it's weird to talk to his mom. And like he'll remember a conversation with her, right? But it's almost always like a flashback of a conversation, right? Or Richard will yeah. think about, you know, what it was like when he met Patty. But except that when he when he shows up at the house to do the overpopulation uh, brainstorm or whatever... You know, then we get a scene with her, right? But she just kind of haunts the edges of it, and then we get back into her mind for the next section. And I don't know if that's bad. I actually think it's structurally interesting, and I think it, uh, I think it makes some sense actually, because to some extent, it's Patty's choices before what set up all the weird conflicts that those three guys are dealing with, right? And then we want to see how she reacts to the fallout of them. I think that makes sense. But because Patty is the most interesting character in the book, I think um, those other sections are not as interesting because, again, as you're well, saying, they're more typey, and yeah. Well, what's kind of funny is I, I, I thought in some ways, you know, this isn't true of Walter, I guess, but Richard definitely, Richard's most interesting when he's just a, a bit player in Patty's narrative, right? Yeah. So, and, and including like, so I, I think Jonathan Franzen, you know, again, like I, I think his creative breakthrough was just to say like, 
to hell with all of these tricks. Like I'm going to still, he has plenty of gimmicks. He's doing plenty of cool, you know, devices. Like he has interviews and he has different perspectives, different modes and perspectives. So he's still doing lots of like, you know, lit fix stuff. But when he kind of, I think said to hell with it, with experimental things, one of the ways in which he did that, it seems to me is that he just said, yeah, I'm going to describe these people's backstories and inner lives for 20 pages just like a Victorian novel, which sometimes works, but the problem with that is your content has to actually hit, which, you know, people in my world, I feel like, hate talking about, actually, they love talking about content, but we're not very good at it. It's harder to talk (laughs) about, like, why is it, you know, why is a story interesting is is sort of hard to talk about. I had one teacher before Syracuse, actually, um, who was great, Erica Krauss, she always liked to sell new writers, especially, that, you know, would you does this story have a plot line that you would like call your best friend about and tell her? Cause if not, it's not enough drama. And that, that's not, I think that eventually that advice is not good. At some point you can write about whatever you want to, but I actually think, you know, we have our time talking about what's interesting because it's so taste based. But for this novel, what I'm trying to get to is that when she talks about Walter and Richard and their sort of brotherly love, brotherly competition, it made both of them much more interesting than they were on their own. In fact, the most interesting I found them usually was when they were in a scene together and they were both put off their game by the other person. And when Richard wasn't with Walter and Walter wasn't with Richard, they were less interesting. But it was funny because a lot of that um, dynamic was introduced by Patty. And so it's still a way in which like Patty's insight <laughs> is still the more interesting fact of both of these other main characters. Um, and so, yeah, I, I know we always say this, but like, you know, th- I, yeah, I mean, I think is, this is a maximalist po- project that it's hard to say like what he should have cut, except 2004, he, he should have cut a lot from that section yeah. um, because it, it was too much time away from Patty. Like that alone is a reason to cut stuff. Patty's your interesting person. It's too much time away from Patty, in my opinion. I would agree. And I, I also think it's, I mean, this is maybe the, the sort of the Tumblr critique, but I do think it probably should be said. Richard's primary function of the story is to be a wrecking ball that uh, damages and then rearranges Walter and Patty's relationship, right? That's what he does in the plot. Now, yeah. He is a main character. He gets his own thing. But the equivalent person on the other side, which is Lalitha, does not get a chapter from her perspective, right? She's, I think, no. pretty underdeveloped. She's pretty much just this sort of... Um, uh, type isn't the word I want, like a, a pedestal. What, there's a word I want here for something you put on a pedestal. There's a word for it, and I can't think of it. But sort of an idol, I guess, that Walter is kind of idolizing or exalting, and then eventually ends up um, involved in a relationship with, and then once she is inconvenient for the story, she dies. <laughs> Which is uh, really incredible. I mean, in many ways, it is very Victorian. Like, I don't know what to do with this chick, oh, so she's yeah. going to get typhus. You know what I mean? Except that she dies in a car accident. And it's not, I mean, he's yeah. described her as driving like a lunatic several times. So you're like, oh, okay, I get it. But yeah, uh, as soon as it is inconvenient now to get back to the story of Walter and Patty, Lalitha is crushed to death at the bottom of a cliff and dies in horrible pain. And I, again, I'm not trying to read too much into that. You're allowed to kill characters. It's just... First of all, much more aggressive than anything else that happens in the book. Uh, <laughs> the well, only it... <laughs> other like active violence is when Patty like slashes the neighbor's tires. Like that's I, I guess Walter gets in yeah. a couple like in two brief fist fights that are not very uh, intense. Uh, so like I'm not saying again I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's very jarring. And also it, it does feel a bit like well Walter or Richard gets to have an inner life. Uh, and Lolita gets to die <laughs> without ever getting a first person or a, a chapter from her perspective, which. 
I, again, I'm not saying that is the end of the book, but I, I do no, think that, I that think... Tumblr critique is not nothing. <laughs> no, I, I agree. One, so, okay, I have several things to say about this. Um, <laughs> one, so in, in our effort to keep giving Franzen his due, because again, like he, he his his mistakes, I'm not sure like they're quantitatively more than other novelists' mistakes, but they're almost like, they're almost like just such obvious pet peeves. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not sure he's a worse writer than other re- people. Like, I'm not sure he's a worse writer than Michael Chabon, for example, right? Like, right, and yeah. I don't, and like, I, you know, I think in some ways the this book might live in my mind even more than Michael Chabon's book. I, I'm not sure, but, um, but the stuff that he's annoying about, see, just it stands out so much more. <laughs> um, and I think maybe it's because he has that punk rock streak. He wants to be provocative. He wants to just overdo it, yada yada. But with um, Lalitha, or and I apologize if we're saying her name wrong, but I, so I think he does a c- couple of things well, which is that he, when they get in a relationship, he does seem to give her more specificity, right? Like she gets mad at Walter. She tells him, hey, you keep talking to me like I'm your kid. I'm not one of your kids. I am almost 28. I know this is dumb to fall in love with you. I didn't want to do that. (laughs) And so there's a way in which he starts to kind of build her out. You know, it's like her passion. She's the competent one at selling things and at making their movement for um, <laughs> anti-overpopulation happen, right? She's sort of the engine. So he try. I think he tries to address in some ways the critique that you're, you know, Im- implying or whatever. But I agree. I think one chapter from her perspective would have been really interesting, even like a very short chapter, right? Something really small. And maybe not. Maybe maybe it would have ruined it. I don't know. But second of all, I yeah, I I I did not see her dying. Actually, like I'm actually <laughs> pretty. Like I feel like one of the problems I have in books. That a lot of readers have, but like I really am good at anticipating what's going to happen. You I know, mean, like I can usually say like, okay, he mentioned this once, she's going to die this way, right? Like that's usually how I operate with plot. Um, and I didn't see her dying, but I I did think I kept thinking to myself like, was this an instance where it would have been better to go bigger? <laughs> like it's so <laughs> like it's so out of left field. Like, I was like, why not just have that racist white guy who's in the book for no reason, basically, yeah. shoot her? Right? Like, I don't, like, why not have, I, I don't know, like, that would have been crazy. You, you couldn't have done that. But I, I but it was so jarring, I almost thought, like, either the execution of how it, it he chose to have her die should have been maybe built up somehow. Um, even though I like that he throws it away, like, I don't know. I mean, I, but yeah, I, I don't know. It. Because it, it does definitely start to show the wires of the the puppet, right? So he is doing this because he's trying to find ways to complicate Walter and Patty's love life. <laughs> but because Lalitha has only been ever Walter's assistant, her status as a plot device, it just it becomes so exposed in that moment that I think it is it is frustrating in a way that like the stuff with Richard feels inevitable. But it's not as frustrating because Richard seems like he's making choices that are a little more, you know, yeah, robust and, you know, complicated. But, but yeah, kind of part of me, part of me did, part of me did think that he should just, he should have just had Coyle Mathis, whatever his name is, just like shoot her or something. Um, I hear that. I think about that sometimes. This is a, this is, this is a little off topic, but there is a, uh, it's a random like interview from a video game design interview on a video game no one played, or at least I certainly didn't. But I think about it all the time. It was a game <laughs> called Rage by Bethesda, which uh, 
was a post-apocalyptic shooter. I couldn't tell you three things about it, other than that there's a scene in Breaking Bad where Jesse Pinkman plays it by pointing his... Like, it's like it's a light gun game, which it isn't. Oh, It's a, it's yeah, a very perplexing okay. choice in Breaking Bad. But anyway, uh, <laughs> there was... They were, Bethesda talked about when they were testing it... Maybe it's id, not Bethesda. Oh, that's the same... Oh, my God. I'm going to have to edit some of that later. I can't remember who actually did it, because one company bought the other. Anyway, the developers... Uh, talked about how they were testing a sequence which was intended to be like a vehicle sequence, you know, get in your car and drive from here to there. But they had bad guys jump out and attack the player sometimes, right? And they kept getting right. feedback, you know, this is uh, super boring, there are too many bad guys here, right? But nobody liked it if they just drove from here to there without anything happening. Like, nobody nobody has the attention span for that right, in that kind of game, right. which is, it's not like I'm being yeah. snarky, but it's also true. Like, if your primary verb is shoot and you go 30 minutes without doing that, it's weird, right? Yeah. Uh, and so what they realized the solution was was they needed to add a lot more bad guys there because then uh, it became, rather than a vehicle sequence sequence occasionally interrupted by combat, it became a combat sequence where you're in a vehicle. Uh, <laughs> and they never got any more complaints about that section again, apparently, is at least how the story yeah. goes. And I think about that as a... I think about that all the time along with the, like, uh, where do you put the armor on the B-17 graphic that always goes around Twitter, right? The survivorship bias. I think about that all the time about how the obvious lesson sometimes for why something feels bad in a work of art or in technical design sometimes isn't actually the correct answer. Um, and so I, I, I'm interested in your your point that maybe the solution to Lalitha dying in a car accident is actually that it should have been something significantly less... <laughs> significantly bigger. Like, I don't know if I agree with that necessarily, yeah, but I like I, it as an idea, and I would at least think about it. I mean, it. <laughs> I, you know, and, and, and it's possible, and, and this is the problem with novels, right? It's, it's possible he tried it, and, like, he just, you know, because at some point, you have a plot, and the problem is characters have to go from point A to point B, and, like, it's possible he just didn't know how else to get there. You know, because yeah. I, I will say, like, I, I didn't like how it happened. It, it did feel kind of totally out of nowhere. <sighs> But as far as the complications it adds to Patty and Walter's life, you know, Patty talks about it in her last autobiographical section. It sort of took away any chances they thought they had in an easy reconciliation, which yeah. actually, like, I will say for me, it, it made their reconciliation, which does eventually happen, a lot more poignant. Actually, like I, I, I was kind of like surprised that they sort of had a happy ending. Um, I have some problems with the last chapter, but I, I think that to the extent that this book is about kind of its own totality, right? It's a book that gets more complicated as it goes on. It's, it's about it's, it's a book about accretion in some ways, right? Like that life is sort of this involuntary and also voluntary accretion. You collect people by accident and on purpose. You correct, you collect interests by accident and by nature and so forth, so on. And to the extent that it's a book which wants to have sort of like, um, you know, wants to have all of its points come to you as the book closes almost, right? Um, I found it, really endearing that like in the last chapter there's this great line it's basically a throwaway line which is so classic kind of Franzen and his wry irony where um one of the neighbors asks patty in the very end oh are you also a bird lover and patty says no i'm a i'm a walter lover and i was like i that worked for me it worked and i, and I think that the escalation of lolita dying and sort of it both preserves walter's love for her but also it complicates the idea of him and Patty ever being together. I don't know. Like it, it, it makes sense, and I get why he had to go there. But, yeah, I mean, it definitely 
it definitely fell short of what I wanted it to be in the moment. So on the subject of things we did like, I, I actually do mostly like the last chapter a lot, like I think you were indicating. I know there's one problem with it you have, which I think I, I at least mostly agree with. I don't know if it bothered me as much as it did you, but I think you're right. And I'll let you talk about that rather than stealing your thunder. But <laughs> oh, yeah, I, no. <laughs> I, I like their reconciliation is what I'm trying to say. And I also liked that we went back to the thousand foot neighborhood view. Um, yes. And it let you have some fairly sort of soap opera melodramatic scenes without actually doing them that way, which is good, right? Because that's always the problem. Yes. Like you, you've built up this huge conflict between these characters and you know that these characters had some sort of massive sobbing reconciliation but you don't really want to show that because there's no way you can write it in a way that doesn't just come off as trite and embarrassing right and so unless you're going to make it complex or interesting in some way which it's hard to do particularly at the end of your book you just got to not do most of it right so almost that stuff happens <laughs> yeah. off stage and yeah. you get a little bit but just the beginning of that conversation basically happens on stage but then the rest of it happens off stage and the neighbors are like oh so his wife moved back in with him okay that's interesting you know uh and so i, I really liked that way of handling it and i do think that you're right the fact that all you think is dad makes that reconciliation much more interesting because otherwise she would have just gotten bored with him at some point and left and that would have been probably fine for the novel but not as interesting as this right this tension that they have but i loved him uh and his war on the cats i think that's excellent actually i, 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 I yes. have no notes about that so <laughs> well my so my only note so i, I agree with you I, I think the last two sections work really well in tandem because it, it's a slow it's a slow pulling out right because even though the penultimate section is patty once again doing autobiography even though it's sort of a very close perspective she's writing about the past and so there's this emotional removal sort of this kind of you know, she's healed up. She's different. There's this very like healthy kind of, um, no longer just ironic objectiveness, objectiveness. Oh my gosh. Uh, objectivity to what she's talking about. <laughs> um, and so that's a good, you know, that's a good entry into, like you said, we go back to a different communal perspective. The one note that I had was I, I just thought so that there's like one neighbor in this communal perspective that's highlighted um, and it's, it's kind of like this Christian right mom who, you know, she, Walter's coming around telling everyone, could you please put your cats away? And actually their conversation I thought was pretty funny. Um, but I, I, why I thought it was a mistake to kind of have her in there too much is that, um, he can't help himself when it comes to like developing characters, like what she needed to be was a thumbnail sketch, right? She yeah. needed to be like a quick person. And we know who, and, and she is, we know who she is immediately, but then he hammers home who she is like for me, like three or four times too much, which is annoying because right before it ends, he does a very smart friends and move where she like meets Patty and sees how Patty wins over the neighborhood. And this nosy, annoying Christian right neighbor says, I need to learn from her. I'm becoming too alienated. And so, like, he complicates her, right? He makes her more interesting and human before he's done with her. But for a chapter that's all about Walter and Patty reuniting, I just thought, like, this is not the time to kind of flog home one more overly obvious parody of the things you don't like in a character I've never met and don't care about. But that sounds harsher than I feel, because like I said, you know... In, this, in some ways, we're circling this question, this whole conversation. He, in some ways, like, is, you know, is this a good book? Is this a bad book? I don't know, man. Like, he, he did kind of get me with the ending. I, I felt yeah. relief and I felt, like, happy <laughs> for these characters who don't exist. <laughs> um, 
and and I, you know, I, I'm, I I still have a lot of problem with their characterizations and a lot of the choices he made that I I think we can probably explore even more to be honest. But the totality of the book, at least at the moment of closing it, seemed to have been a success. Um, at least it edged that way when I literally finished the last chapter. Is that how you felt? Yeah. So I. I've, I've been dithering about it because there were parts of the book when I was like, I hate this, but I, they didn't really last very long, <laughs> I, right? I know. Like, I know, it wasn't yeah. like, I've read books where I'm like, I hate every page of this and I am reading this out of a perverse desire to complete every book I own, right? Uh, right. And that wasn't this. Like, I had a couple chapters when I was like, I get it. Oh my God, stop it. But they didn't last too long and then he would say something I really liked. Like, he had some really good sentences and some really good character choices. And so I think by the time I got to the end, I actually was... I mean, I'm not going to. I'm not going to repeat everything you just said, but I think that at least squares with my experience. So I do think that if you held a gun to my head and said "good book, bad book," I'm actually going to say "good book" as much as I've spent a lot of time in this podcast making fun of it, um, right? Because I, I do think it it mostly does work, and some of it also is that I I think some of his project I'm just not as interested in, which is not really yeah fair Same. to be critical of. You know what I mean? Like I am just not this interested in in the. It, sex scenes in books are boring and I don't care about them and I wish I didn't have to read about <laughs> sex in books either. anymore and I'm sure that's because <laughs> I, I am a prude who has been single for what feels like a million years now but I'm just not interested <laughs> in this much sex in a book uh, but again that's not really fair to say and therefore it's a bad book like I don't right you know what I mean uh, and so I, I think at the end of the day I think I would end up saying good book but I'm still gonna make fun of him a lot um, I think that's, I think, I think maybe he'll have to live with that. I will come by saying that it's a good novel that does a lot of good stuff. And also he's a real goober. How's that? I think that's pretty much the perfect friends in summary. <laughs> um, I do, I do want to circle back. So it seems like one character we both found very annoying was Joey, who is the son of Walter yeah. and Patty. And it's one of those things where like, there's, there's this endless kind of talking point and criticism about like, unlikable characters because you do i mean as a librarian i heard this all the time you do get a lot of general readers you know a lot, oftentimes they're straw men but i they exist i talked to them at the library who don't like it <laughs> when they don't like the characters right like this is like so the famous example for a long time was girls right yeah the show here are these four super insufferable people why am i watching this and i, I think at some points it's like that's actually fine it's that's that's a fine reason not to watch a show you know what i mean like I think that actually is okay to say is, you know, an excuse for doing something else with your time in life. (laughs) I'm not sure it's a a useful art criticism, right? But it's not like an invalid thing to say, which some people, a lot lot of people get pretty uppity about, like, oh, you don't like the characters? Why don't you go watch Friends? And it's like, actually, yeah, that's probably what they they will do. And I I think it's probably fine. Like, who, I don't know, (laughs) like, that's an okay choice. But with this book, like, it, it wasn't just that I didn't like Joey. Um, cause some of his stuff, again, like Franzen was, it's a, it's a, it's almost a cheap trick. It's all, it's almost like the obvious trick. I should say, you know, you see a character from a different perspective, like you see Joey from his mom's perspective or whatever. And then you get into Joey's head and everyone sees Joey as very cool and very like almost sociopathically driven and his actions in his section bear that out. But of course, like he has a conversation with his girlfriend's mom and she accuses him of being an uncaring cad, basically. And then he cries. And it, you know, and it, it's kind of ironically done, so it's not very emotional. But you, you are getting a different side of Joey, basically. Um, so all that stuff was fine. So why was he so terrible and boring? 
now. Well, I think it's because, I mean, a lot he, he has he, he has kind of two, well, again, part of it is because his primary conflict for a lot of the book, and it's less true towards the end, and he's more interesting when he's doing stuff later on, but his primary conflict towards the end of the yeah. book is that he would like to stick his dick in this gal Jenna, but he's also very attached to continuously sticking his dick in his girlfriend. Um, <laughs> and Yeah, that's it. <laughs> And I'm sorry for the crudity of that, but that's more or less correct. Um, and I'm I, and I'm being he's got an emotional attachment to his girlfriend, and she understands him in a way, or at least claims to, and she's like pathologically dedicated to him in a way which is uh, deeply troubling, and clearly intended yeah. to be at least partly a mirror of Eliza and his mom earlier, and and so on and so forth. But like he, you know, just treats her terribly for much of the thing. By the end of it, he's sort of man- manned up, but uh, treats her really pretty exhaustively terribly. And sort of sociopathically, and it's also not interesting, yeah. right? And I think that's the no, thing. It's, like, yeah. I'm I'm happy to read about characters I don't like, but if I don't think they're interesting, I just feel like they're being inflicted upon me for no reason. You know what I mean? Like, I yes. not only am I spending a lot of time with this person that I hate, but I don't know why I'm doing it. You know? <laughs> well, uh, and I guess I mean, yeah, I guess because I I guess so that characters in the for me this book is about Walter and Patty, right? Yeah, and so characters either add to sort of my understanding of the Berglund life. And of course you would think Joey should do that. Joey is in fact the focal point of the book's opening, right? We learn that he is so fed up with his family. He moves out while he's still in high school to the next door neighbor's house. So he can sleep with his girlfriend. I mean, I, I know like a lot of dramatic stuff happens. Like, you know, some crazies have happened in, in my life with my suburban family or whatever, but that is still a pretty extreme situation. And so it's, it's, it's interesting because on one hand, I think it was very smart that Franzen almost deals with that offhandedly, right? Like yeah. he does, he does explain like Joey does tell you what happened basically, which is that his, his mom has no boundaries, right? She suffocated him in an unhealthy parent to child way. And so he cut her out. Right. Um, and he does. And again, I think, you know, like you said, there's there's ways in which Joey is sort of combining the mistakes of his father and his mother, but definitely his mom with, you know, the need to be loved, but, you know, being kind of a bad person. And how does he choose to, like, be someone who loves in return and not just seeks love, yada, yada, yada. But I think, yeah, and this is a story where either it's very helpful for me to see this character because it's it's helping me understand Patty and Walter and their whole dynamic or this character miraculously kind of just explodes off the page. And I, I, I think that Franzen thinks Richard Katz sort of is cool enough to be followed around. I don't think I agree with that either, but I at least understand his stuff better than I, and some of Joey's stuff, it did feel like, it, did, it felt at best superfluous, to be honest. Like, it just felt like a different book about a different kid. And the best parts were the funniest parts. Like, I kind of liked that he swallowed his wedding ring. That was That funny. actually, I was going to um, say. So there's a scene <laughs> in the book where, <laughs> so he swallows his wedding ring. Uh, he, he kind of marries Connie on a whim. And they buy, like, a cheap wedding ring. Connie's his high school girlfriend. And then he uh, is going to go to Patagonia to ride horses with Jenna, who is this sort of, beautiful heiress that he's been crushing on for quite a while and he's pretty sure that he's gonna get laid uh and that doesn't really end up happening because of various reasons but uh (laughs) he's playing with his wedding ring and he likes to put it in his mouth uh just it's just a thing he does sometimes and he's distracted and he swallows it and he swallows it right before he's supposed to go on this trip to patagonia to bang this super hot chick but he wants his wedding ring back and so there's a scene where that evening where he is sifting through his poop 
in the bathroom. <laughs> and then Jenna wakes up and knocks on the door to try to go in and get something she needs. And he's frantically searching through his poop for his wedding ring while the hot girl he was trying to sleep with earlier and couldn't get it done for various reasons is pounding on the door. And, like, that is horrible. That's great. But actually yeah. pretty funny. Like, that's actually pretty yeah. good. That is a funny sort of, like, look at the stupid things that your life has led you into, you you idiot scene. Which I think works on, on a sort of a, just a straightforward, like, ha, poop level which is fine like i'm serious like it, it's funny like and it also works on a broader sort of and this is when he starts to realize exactly how this isn't going to work <laughs> right <laughs> i totally well you know what you know what's funny so i i definitely thought joey's stuff okay i mean you know, editing's always the answer right editing either cutting or adding right but that but there's a specific sort of trimming and rearranging i think franzen could have done with joey's stuff which would have for me worked better. There, there was just there was a lot of him at college that I think we didn't need. Um, no, agreed. I and I and I, and I, I think like basically I was because you know why are you interested in Joey? And you know Franzen doesn't love to answer things straightforwardly. That's what makes him a great novelist in a lot of ways. I think is that he knows how to set up kind of interests. He gets your curiosity with a hook, and then he uses that hook to sort of delve into a lot of other even more complicated sort of connections to that initial hook. And so the initial hook of this novel is what happened to Joey, right? That's at least for me, like that's the question of, yeah. yes, what happened to Patty? But uh, I'm sorry, like, I mean, I, I've got two kids. I, I had siblings. I, I actually had some pretty hard-headed siblings. We got threatened with going to live in Oklahoma. And, you know, I have siblings who joined the army and yada, 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 right? Like, so when you tell me that the 16-year-old kid moved out of his parents' house, like that is clearly the hook, to ask what is exceptional about this family because that is an exceptional, exceptionally dysfunctional situation. And so I think Franzen could have basically addressed that part and then jumped ahead. You know, he could have just, he could have summed up the tension of Connie and Joey in the first year or two of college. That could have been like literally three paragraphs. Like he kept yeah. talking to her. But, you know, like yada, 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 right? But we just spend so much time with him in college sorting through this stuff that I, I think, yeah, all, all of the interesting things are basically on either end of that, right? They're at the beginning when he's younger and they're at the end when he's a little older. And the stuff in the middle could have literally been summed up in a couple of pages, um, but, which is hard, though. Again, I, I, think this, I, I guess sometimes, you know, I, I'm always flipping back between like being a, being a reader, being a critic and being a writer and the writer part of me is like, Franzen clearly, how he thinks and works is that he wants to show you as much of from point A to point B as he can. That's just how his brain works. He can't seem to stop himself. That's where a lot of the energy comes from. But it does seem to me like this would have been a point for an editor to say, you need less Joey. <laughs> he is boring. Um, and also, I guess the last thing I would say, I know I've been talking a lot about Joey, sorry, but I, I do think this book suffers a little bit from never actually seeing how Patty and Walter raised younger children. And I, I get why it doesn't do that. And it's, it's probably fine that it doesn't do that. But truthfully, part of what I found boring about Joey is even though he explains what happened with his mother, I, you know what? I think I needed a different perspective on that. I actually, I was certain that Walter was going to give us some more insight on that. And when he didn't, it just felt like, Franzen took a little of the easy way out with explaining how these parents screwed up so badly. Like, on one hand, I get it. They're so broken. On another hand, I'm not sure he quite explained Joey enough to then give Joey that much real estate. Yeah. 
I think I, I think I at least mostly agree with that. There is a pretty good bit in the first chapter when Patty's describing an argument that Joey and Walter had about dessert. That's pretty good. Uh, That's where great. I forget, the yeah. speci- I forget the setup, but Walter has said something like, eat your dessert. And he's like, no, I don't even like dessert. And it, rather than either of them just calming down from this sort of who cares if he eats dessert and also, yes, you do, kind of argument, they both take it to the extreme. <laughs> So Walter is like, you will eat your dessert. You always eat dessert. He says, no, I've only ever eaten it to be polite. In fact, I'm never going to eat dessert again. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's a good, it, it felt it's like good. it made sense. That's the sort of thing I can see kids doing, sort of thing my dad and I might have done at some point. Uh, right. But I mean, that's one of the only scenes we really get of them raising them as as younger kids. Um, and it also means that we, we we only see them and in the sort of failing part of their relationship. And that's the more interesting right. part in a lot of ways, but we maybe needed to see a little more of the times when it at least looked like it was working. Um, well, and I just, I guess in some ways it did seem like, and th- this is how kids are. I mean, like, you know, I, like my siblings, I feel like including me, like we took turns being the terrible black sheep because <laughs> of our, of our nature, right? Like your nature, which is assert itself at a certain stage in the family development. And all of a sudden, you know, oh, Joel, Joel's now the problem. What the heck? And, um, but, uh, but on the other hand, like, truthfully, like, I just think Joey wasn't developed. So like I said earlier, like, you give a perspective on one character and then you you put the reader in that character's head and you kind of gain some complexity. But I guess I'm saying I don't think Joey was developed enough before I was in his head for some of that counterbalancing to really come through. But we should move on from Joey. Okay, so circling back again to a different thing, which, by the way, whenever I say circle back now, which I, I actually don't think I used to say it that much, but then there was that big tweet back in March about, like, you're now working at home with your spouse and you didn't realize you were married to a circle back guy. Yeah. Do you remember that tweet? <laughs> I do, yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm not kidding you when I say I think that that joke about that phrase put that phrase in my head and I now use it more than I used to. So that's like a microcosm of Twitter's derangement. But also, um, have you ever, I, I hate that thing where a phrase you don't like suddenly enters your lexicon and becomes a thing. It becomes, like, yeah, I don't know I, where I, it came from, but at some point, I think because the judge I used to work for used to say it. Um, now, when I'm talking to a client, rather than saying, I think you told me that X, Y, and Z happened, I tend to say, you had indicated to me that X, Y, or Z. I'm like, what the heck is that about? <laughs> Stop it. You said that. And I do it yeah. in my everyday life now. I was talking yeah. to a gal that I was talking to on Bumble, and I said, I think you had indicated that X. And I almost turned off the <laughs> phone and threw it into the ocean. I was like, I'm an indicated guy now? Indicated. Indicated. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's how I felt. I just said circle back, and I was like, that's the second time I've said this phrase on this podcast. And I swear, <laughs> I never used to say that phrase. Um, <laughs> so anyway, to return Sorry. to an earlier discussion. <laughs> no, that's good. You had indicated um, that you wanted to circle back, too. <laughs> correct. <laughs> Correct. Uh, correct. So we, we mentioned earlier that in a lot of ways, the politics of this book are kind of contentless, or at least they're like spineless. Like he has real content in the sense that here are these ideas clashing with these ideas. You know, the Iraq war is bad versus the Iraq war is protecting Israel. And he obviously has one side of those things he thinks is legitimate. But that's oftentimes a sort of spineless conflict that's just meant to be a characterization of the people in the book or even like almost part of their setting, right? They exist in 2004. Part of the setting of 2004 is this post 9-11 political, you know, maelstrom. And so anyway, but I, but I, I did find it really interesting um, 
not that there are ever any new ideas, but that one of the things that's kind of flogged throughout the novel is overpopulation, right? That's kind of returned to again and again. At one point, um, Walter even refers disparagingly to him <laughs> himself as a breeder. <laughs> as you know, part of like this overpopulation problem. And I just, I, I would be curious, like this is where I actually almost, you know, wish I could hear Franzen's thoughts about the current moment. Because a lot of the things he says about the youth movement, I'm not sure if that's accurate still. Like some of the stuff he says, like I feel he feels most insightful politically when he is describing political temperaments, right? So Jessica, Walter and Patty's daughter at one point, when she's helping Walter and his assistant come up with their big don't overpopulate the world campaign, she keeps kind of telling them, no, my generation is inherently more libertarian than you guys. You can't talk about it as this big negative thing. You have to talk about it as a positive thing. And Walter talks through the issues of being against overpopulation, and he explicitly talks about some of my criticisms of that line of thinking, which is that it's inherently elitist. It's an, For me, it's, it's one of the ways people can talk about the poor and the religious that they already don't like in a new way they don't like. But I, I, I just, I guess, you know, even though, like, that's sort of not a robust argument the book wants to actually be having, it came up enough that I, 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 I couldn't help but think about it for myself. And I thought, you know, if not prescient, he, this is one of the ways in which he is very skilled. He seems to capture the kinds of arguments people are having. And actually that, like, we're still having, you know, 10 years, 15 years later, um, I just thought, I guess I just, maybe it's just a note that I, I found that very striking and I, I, I assume you found it, you know, either striking or boring, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that to the extent there was, uh, meat on any of the political discussions, that's the one, cause it's the one that Walter cares a lot about and it's hooked into right. his character. Like he, he points at one point that he, he sort of loves nature, but he mostly just loves nature by which he wants to safeguard it from like hillbillies, like his family. Right. Uh, yeah. Like there, there, so there's, there's, there's some, I think, interestingness where that's hooked into Walter's psyche. And again, that, that argument when they're trying to figure out how to appeal to the youth. Um, and first of all, they're trying to talk to Walter, who doesn't have any idea how to appeal to anybody. And Richard Katz, right. who is a washed up, like, pop or punk star who turned into being like some sort of country singer. Jeff, it was not really entirely yeah, clear to like me. Yeah, like Jeff Tweedy alternative person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Jessica being, again, being like, that's not how... I, I thought there was at least some truth to that. And they, they go again, they go to um, a Connor Oberst show, Bright Eyes, which is a real band that I don't know anything about. Right. right? Uh, but it's a uh, real band. Same, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Rich, it's one of Katz's chapters. And he's looking around and he's saying that the young people at that are a lot more like... Are, are not as just angry as sort of the young people in his generation were or whatever. And you hear that. You hear people talk about the difference between like political activism and millennials or, or zennials or whatever the hell they're calling them versus the sort of, uh, sort of Gen X, like Nirvana band, right? Like the sort of like angry, that sort of thing. And I think to some extent, some of that is, is more complicated than that. But I, I do think that there's, or, or the sixties too, right? Like, and I do think yeah. that there's at least some truth to that. And I think Franzen's got some, some good ways of identifying that. Um, I'm not quite clear how old these people are supposed to be. That's why I mean I know they're they're 45 in 2004, so I guess I could just do the math. But I hadn't. You know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They they seem like they're basically you know like um yeah like I guess they're his almost age, our parents' ages. Yeah, I yeah. They're, they're, he's, he was born in 59, so I guess they're his age. Yeah, but I, I was, so yeah that 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 part you just highlighted actually where Richard Katz and 
Walter at the um, the youthful concert. I, I did like that line where um, he says cats kind of earn the cat's perspective. It says that like these kids are a generation who are a gentler or who have a gentler and more respectful way of being a way not incidentally more in harmony with consuming. And I, I, I like that only in the sense that it, it does seem like a lot of the ways in which we are supposed to be ethically or politically conscientious comes back to buying, right? So, and I'm not saying this is wrong per se, but definitely in Colorado, this is still a big deal is like not just even organic grocery stores, but organic clothing. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all, I'm all for like, let's not support, you know, people enslaving folks in South Asia so I can wear sneakers. Like, I'm not saying it's bad per se, but I think that there is, something amiss in the emphasis on being a better buyer, right? And I think that he's not wrong to point out the ways in which a lot of us maybe are just kind of like, you know, uh, where you're, you know, you go to Whole Foods and you buy a $10 apple, you're as much a part of the system as anyone in a lot of ways, right? Um, and that these ethical choices are maybe a, a little more of a mirage than we like to think they are. Some of that seems to me accurate. Um, but yeah, no, I, so yeah, I did think that's, I, the last thing I will say is within that narrative, once again, we come back to the idea of politics as characterization and this book as sort of a, an investigation of how do we become better? How do we try and be better? And all, a lot of the characters, they continually echo each other, right? Um, you talked about obviously the kids are echoing the parents, but Walter, of course, um, in the very last chapter, he kind of echoes Patty, right? Like all the neighbors are talking about him. They think that he killed a cat, <laughs> which he basically yeah. did. And then the first chapter, of course, all the neighbors were talking about Patty slashing the neighbor's tires, which she did. Um, but he also more pointedly echoes Richard Katz. In the beginning of the book, Richard Katz is this indie rock star traveling the country. And what sort of makes him free is his integrity, right? He's doing crappy shows for no audience, but he hasn't sold out. And at the end of his successful career, that's what Walter does. He becomes this sort of like indie activist who's dealing with all these fringe people. The audience basically resembles Richard Katz's audience. And, you know, it's the first time he feels like he's let himself do the right thing. And I, I just thought like that was smart for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is that when you're trying to become a better person, yeah, you basically, I think often end up stealing from the people around you so that the, like the horizon of how to be better is limited by the people that you admire. And I think this book reflects that really intelligently. All right. Any other big ideas you want to hit on? I, I don't know if this is a big idea, but uh, War and Peace comes up several times throughout the novel. Uh, Patty is reading War and Peace at the same time that she sort of ends up having her little brief affair with Richard, and they reference it a few more times. And on the one hand, I always enjoy it when one of our big reads references another one, which happens sometimes. And obviously, yeah. uh, we don't get to claim War and Peace as being in some way unique to our podcast. <laughs> but I still, I still enjoyed we, that. We discovered it. We, yeah, we actually discovered Tolstoy? it. <laughs> People were in uh, people were in danger of forgetting Tolstoy, and we, like Mendelssohn yeah. with Johann Sebastian Bach, thrust him back into the limelight. Um, anyway, um, it was still fun, and it's hard to you know. And a couple times, the book makes at least some abstract parallels between some of the characters in War and Peace and the characters in in the in the, in the situation there, where you have. 
Patty sort of being put in like the Natasha Rostov yeah. role, and then Pierre and Andre being Walter and Richard, respectively. It doesn't really scan if you look at it too closely, and I don't think it's intended to. Um, but they do a bit of that. The one thing that I stuck, I, I, this is really silly, but the thing that it stuck to me is that it's a book called War and Peace, and the main characters are Walter and Patty. So there's W and P, W and P. Yeah. I don't know if that means anything, yeah. but it feels almost on purpose. I don't know I, if I, I have anything had, there. <laughs> no, I think I think it had to be. And I, I think the only thing I would have to say is that, you know, sometimes it's it's just, yeah, sometimes it's fun in your big novel about a love triangle to reference the most famous big novel about a love triangle. That's that's cool. I'm cool with that. But I, I, <laughs> I do think if there's any, like, substantive overlap, um, there's probably more overlap with, you know, Anna Karenina in a lot of ways. You know, all happy families are alike. And this would be one of the unhappy families. And how is it, yeah. you know, ex- ex- exceptional? But as far as the War and Peace connection, that you know, War and Peace was pretty genuinely interested in Pierre and Andre as friends, right? They weren't just connected as rivals. They were friends who loved the same girl. And I guess that's been done a lot since, probably. I don't know. But I, this book really does make a case for Walter and Richard as having as like as having as much of a relationship they have as substantial a relationship as Walter and Patty almost, right? That there is a truly deep connection here. And honestly, like I just think, you know, there's lots of stuff lately talking about, you know, female friendships not being in, you know, kind of explored enough um until Elena Ferrante came along. But I think in general friendships are not explored enough in books. And I, and this one did, I think this, that's one of the things I would say is if it took any cues from war and peace, it treated the male friendship as seriously and as complexly when it could, as it did the love relationships in some ways it was more complex. So that was, yeah, I was all for that. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, What else do you want to hit on? Well, I just got a couple of little things. This is kind of the bill throws a bunch of spaghetti at the wall portion of the podcast now. I had a couple individual lines I wanted to highlight as being very good, and a couple more I wanted to make fun of him for. So give me just a second on each of them. Right? Okay. Um, like the second page, they're talking about Walter and Patty uh, moving to what at the time is a pretty ungentrified neighborhood and is at least appears rough. It's not clear how rough it actually is, right? But at least appears rough to, to all these white people, right? And there's a sort of an empty lot near the house where a bunch of bikers keep going and like revving their engines and stuff early on. And there's a pretty good bit where, yeah, so sunburned bikers descended on the vacant lot across the alley to drink Schlitz and grill Knockwurst and Reb engines at small hours until Patty went outside in sweat clothes and said, hey, you guys, you know what? <laughs> Which is great. I actually, that feels exactly right. That's exactly how that person tries to do this. Tries yeah. to appear informal, friendly, a li- you know, a little bit aggressive enough to listen, but try obviously trying not to get murdered by bikers. I don't know, like, hey, guys, you know what? That's also, I've done that. I have been in that situation where I'm, like, <laughs> trying to break up a fight at the bar. I have no business trying to do. Right. I have done this on more than one occasion. I haven't been killed yet. Uh, and it's just exactly like, hey, guys, let's all just calm down. I'll buy you both a drink. It's dumb. It's going to get me murdered one of these days. Bill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, another quick throwaway line um, is... So uh, Patty has this brief, like, college boyfriend named Carter who is not an important character, right? But he's he's kind of also still banging Eliza. That's what matters, right? But right. <laughs> she likes various things about him. Like, he's 
you know, teaching her about sex and stuff, because of course everything in this book is communicated via sex. But also, she he, she agrees that he she likes that he has uh, a commitment to having an utter lack of career plans, and he sc- describes it as saying, "quote I'm probably best qualified to be some kind of quiet blackmailer." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. That was a great and that is line. Fantastic. That told me everything I needed to know about Carter right there. Uh, and he yeah. doesn't do much. He has like one other scene that matters. Like this is not an yeah. important character, but that was a great sort of. Um, I, I, I always go back to the Shirley Jackson well because she's the greatest writer of the twentieth. Probably not, but I love her very much. And like the thing <laughs> she can do was she could can, uh, summarize iron eyes and express sympathy sympathy for a relationship in a sentence right with like yes. mostly five active words and that's the kind of thing like that like quiet blackmail it tells me so much about this guy totally it's agree um one more nice thing i mean i could do a few more but one other one i really like is towards the end of the book patty goes and sees all of her other family members and we didn't talk about it much because it kind of doesn't matter um but her her mom basically the, the gist of it of their relationship is her mom and dad were really artsy people and patty was a jock and so they basically didn't know what to do with her and she was the black sheep and encouraged her siblings to go do artsy stuff and they're all kind of enormous screw-ups whereas patty despite everything in her life looks like comparatively put together so she goes to see one of her siblings uh and she goes through this tangled web of what, why she wants a certain amount of money for certain things and it doesn't really make a lot of sense you know uh, and she's just, Patty felt like she was dealing with a huge ball of bazooka that she couldn't get ungummed from her fingers. The strands of Veronica's logic were boundlessly elastic and adhered not only to Patty, but to themselves. And that was very good. I have definitely, one might say that I professionally, uh, talk to people who are <laughs> sort of do, making some really perplexing decisions in very perplexing strands of self, uh, of their, of their sort of self-conception, what they're up to. And that is exactly how it feels, where you try to engage with it and unentangle it, and it's all sticky and messing up, and you end up feeling confused and, and sticky yourself by the time you're done. No, I, <laughs> so I like that a lot. I, I loved that image. That I thought that was definitely one of his... That was like him at his best, where it's like... He, he, mentions, a, he mentions a name brand. It's like a very contemporary kind of, you know, like... Almost like, I don't know, like a mainstream reference. But the image is perfect and not like not powerful but so accurate it sticks with you but of course it's bazooka because it's both like uh yeah bubble gum and it's also explosive like because it's, it's, yeah. it's going to screw up their no, whole family it's, per- it's like yeah. it's, it's, it's really good um so now i'm going to make fun of a few things and i could do a lot of these but i have uh two i think i want to pick one is uh, again showing why the only language any of these characters speak is sex, which I've tried not to harp on too much because I don't want this to turn into a psychological exploration of Bill's current hangups. That would be not what I'm trying to do here. <laughs> but um, he's describing... I don't know where to go. Ah! Well, there it is. Okay. Nope, I lost it again. It's just in the middle of this paragraph. Why can't I keep my eye on it? It's because I hate it so much that it doesn't want to be seen. There we go. <laughs> so he... <laughs> Uh, he's describing his girlfriend, who uh, is actually very intelligent, but she's very shy with everyone else and sort of so pathologically dedicated to him that she subsumes her entire personality to him and, I guess, just wins at the end of it and does not change, near as I can tell. So good for her, I guess. She's going to kill them both and make Yay, a Joey suit Connie. later on. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when Joey is thinking about why he likes her, in addition to the fact that she has sex with him a lot, uh, he says, Connie had a wry, compact intelligence. A firm little clitoris of discernment and sensitivity to which she gave Joey access only behind closed doors, which is, I'm not going to dwell on that too much, but gross and yeah. bad. 
and Dumb. not not insightful, like not gross in a way that is insightful. Just like what? No, that doesn't make any sense. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I agree. Yeah, I hated that line. And the last thing I want to say is uh, he mostly avoids sort of weird cliches, but at one point Richard Katz does describe Patty as quote a fresh faced mom with a dark side. And I was like, oh, spare me. <laughs> <laughs> Coming coming to Showtime this fall. <laughs> so that's uh, kind of how I feel about the book. I think there are some, some sentences and, and ideas that really stick with me, and there are some about how your girlfriend's intelligence is a firm little clitoris of discernment that I would rather have not read. So Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I, think, I think the real problem with that stuff, um, you know, speaking of throwing spaghetti against the wall, the people who I think genuinely tend to defend and like Franzen – like, um, I think Laura Miller, who's a critic for Salon, I, I like her overall, usually. I mean, I don't read a lot of her stuff, but I've liked what I've read of her. Uh, she liked this book a lot. And even the blurb in the back of my book, you know, she calls this a, a merciless, satirical look at contemporary life that's also fundamentally generous and humane. And so I think what's hard is, like, I, I, in that moment with, like, her, <laughs> you know, her intelligence being, like, a, a clitoris, I, to me... I can't tell how much fun he's trying to have. And it actually doesn't feel like he's like, what, like, what is he possibly making fun of? Or what's the joke there? You know what I mean? Like what's the punchline? Like if if basically that is part of his punk rock satire, his in your facism, I guess maybe, maybe it's me that I, I, I find some of the provocative for provocative sake. Like there's a thousand ways I could describe Joey's girlfriend's intelligence. In fact, like, famously walnuts are hard and hidden <laughs> you know <or> whatever <laughs> um like you know whatever but like he seems to often choose these things specifically because they're provocative and i i guess that to me that that is not sufficient to be then satirical or intelligent or actually interesting if you do it enough times because it's just the same move over and over um it's you know like it, it's like it's like it's like it becomes monotone in the sense that it's the same note, right? Um, yep. So yeah, but 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 all that to say is like, I I think that's where, even though I think you know I've 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 talked myself into mostly being a friends and defender in some ways, I I don't I don't necessarily buy that part of it. Like the satire that's so broad and <laughs> unspecific, like it does it's not satire. Like you can't hide behind satire as a genre and say this is why i chose clitoris for this metaphor which is maybe a lot to say about this but like i think this this analogy you've picked out is at the heart of like why he annoys people you know like why the f did you do that and i think his reasons for doing it are maybe not always sufficient for me i think i would yeah i think i would agree with that so i I don't know as i have anything else uh, about this book i really wanted to say again i could drill down into picking on him some more on some stuff but I, i think we've made our point um, and also, there's a there's a pretty wide genre of people making fun of Jonathan Franzen on the internet. I don't know as we're really breaking well, new ground at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's funny is I, I think basically the stuff that's insufferable about, insufferable about him, everyone is correct about. And I, to be fair, I haven't been able to make it through most of his essays either. But sometimes people dunk on him. And I do think it's just because he's such a safe target, right? His career's fine. Um, and also some, some of the stuff they don't like, I, you know, he's obviously correct about it. It's just banal. Like he hates the ways in which we're all distracting ourselves to death on the internet and like, okay, maybe he's overstating it, but I mean, he's basically correct. Like that's, that's, that's essentially the, 
criticism of capitalism generally is that you're distracted into accepting your condition and now we're just doing it through wider and more diffusive means on the internet. Um, this book even goes on a rant one time through Walter about fragmentation that I think he's making fun of, but like it is essentially correct. I think I just, you know, I think that it's oftentimes a banal point to kind of come back to in a 10,000 word essay for the New Yorker. But yeah, I don't know. I, I will say the last thing I'll say maybe is that, you know, I, I like the corrections probably more than this book from what I remember. And I, like you, I think you put a gun to my head, even without a gun to my head, I would probably say freedom is, is worth reading, especially because you can go through it so quick. So the stuff that's yeah. boring, you blow, you blow by, um, the stuff that's bad, you blow by. But interestingly, I, I don't think I have any desire to read more Franzen. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that I would tell people, if you read the corrections and you read Freedom, like, I, I don't feel compelled to keep going with him on his journey, you know, past those two books, which I think maybe sums up my ambivalence. I liked both books. I'm not sure I'll ever read another Franzen book, maybe, except for maybe some of his essays. Who knows? Yeah, I uh, I think I would agree. I, I may try to read the corrections at some point, just because you and several other people who I trust have indicated that it's... And I did it! Dang it! Ugh have said to me that it might be uh, the better of the two. Um, I, didn't, I didn't catch it for a second. I didn't even, it was not a, it was not a fun callback joke. It's actually just infected my whole life. Oh, man. It's terrible. A lot of the stuff that, I mean, at this point, I've been doing this public defender job for a year now, and a lot of my life is the same four or five scripts, right? Uh, just in terms yeah, of what I say fair. in court, because there's, you know, either at this hearing we do X, Y, or Z, and I have the same script for each of them, and it's starting to right. take over my life. Uh, it's I'm hearing it in my sleep. It's terrible. Anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I, I'll, I'll read the corrections. I'm cur- He's got a new project that he's just starting. It's a trilogy of books. The first book's called Crossroads. It comes out next year, and the, the, but the trilogy is entitled The Key to All Mythologies, which is the project that the Reverend Kasabin is working on in Middlemarch. And I'm sort of darkly curious what that's about, because I do think that Franzen thinks he's doing George Eliot. I don't think he's wrong exactly, uh, but he thinks right. he's doing kind of a George Eliot project now. And again, I, I, I don't think that's insane. But uh, Kasabin is a fascinating character for me because I, I'm not sure I've ever read a more compelling picture of <laughs> if, if, uh, who I could become if I make a series of terrible decisions and live with them. <laughs> uh, and so I'm sort of darkly curious about what that's about, um, but I don't know if I'll pick it up or not. Yeah, I yeah, I think that's that's fair. The, the trilogy did sound like it maybe had potential. I have no interest in reading Purity. I I I can't even get past the title, Purity. I honestly, I think it's I read the first title. sentence, which was like a Midwest couple, and I was like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. So, all right, Bill. Well, it sounds like we're at the end of things. Just about, except I guess we have maybe to announce what we're reading next at the very least. Yeah, so first of all, this is the, uh, it's not the last podcast we're going to do this year, hopefully. We try to do a, a year in reading podcast. Last year, we did it in February of this year, I think. Uh, we're going to try not to do that. Last year, we were reading War and Peace instead of Freedom, so we were still reading the book at this we point. We were pretty in the, dazed, yeah. <laughs> but we, we, we did our super difficult book third this year instead of fourth, where we have the last two years. So, um, we... Uh, but thanks for listening to everything. Uh, it's been it's been a good time. This will be pretty close to the end of our third year doing this podcast, and I at least don't intend to stop doing it anytime soon. Um, yeah, so yeah, thanks for listening. And again, we'll have one more this year. But the next uh, solo book-focused podcast we're going to do, rather than just a Here's What Bill and Joel Read podcast. So in, in uh, probably March or April of next year, we're going to do Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who uh, 
is uh, actually, a, I think it's, that book's 2013, so it's roughly contemporaneous with this one. Uh, she's a, a younger author, but she's definitely established as a, a heck of a writer. I think most people agree. I have not read any of her novels, but I've read a collection of short stories and liked it quite a bit. Uh, Americana is about a uh, Nigerian, a uh, couple of Nigerian teenagers, one of whom eventually moves to the United States and one stays in Nigeria. I haven't read it, but this is my understanding. And it's sort of about their competing experiences and what it's like to be those people in that situation. And I've heard, I think, only good things about that book. Um, so, uh, yeah, same. Ho- yeah, hopefully we like it. Um, so yeah, that'll be... We, we, we don't give exact deadlines, but it'll be you know spring of next year. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we hope to put out another podcast uh, this year or early next year, you know, going over everything we read in 2020. Not everything, but the highlights that we read in 2020. Um, spoiler alert, it may actually just be... 75% us talking about of Susanna Clark's Piranesi. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it definitely might be. I don't want to I don't want anyone to tune out because of that cuz that book was incredible and we are going to talk about it for a while. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that will I mean, we'll obviously we'll see what happens, but we'll I expect we'll talk else, about that book quite yeah. a bit. Um so, thanks for listening as always and uh Joel, I don't think I have anything else unless you do, but uh nope, is there anything I'm forgetting good. to say? All right. Nope, I so, think you're good, man. Yeah, so as always, thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for having the conversation, Joel, and I'll see you around next time. Sounds good, Bill. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. <laughs> no, but uh, as always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.